Just a quick note before we begin. There's a great event coming up on May 16th in Freehold, New Jersey. If you're in the area or plan on visiting, check out the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K. This event was organized by Marines and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, the Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. It's a great event and we'll be there, so come say hi. If you're not a runner, there'll be an after party with $1 drafts. If this isn't a good enough reason to come, I don't know what is. The website is MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5k.org. You can check this site out for more details, and I'll include a link in the episode description. I'll also share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's get into some Barbary Pirates. Welcome to episode 35 of History of the Marine Corps, the Barbary Pirates. Our last episode closed the chapter on the Quasi-War. We followed Marines during an adventurous amphibious landing, some small skirmishes where Marine musket fire repelled enemy forces, and the response from Congress after the end of the war. This episode is the beginning of a whole new chapter for Marines. Leading up to the Barbary Wars was an embarrassing time for the United States. Congress sold American ships, disbanded the Marine Corps, and significantly decreased the size of the Army. America didn't have a military, and the Barbary states took advantage of the situation. This episode will focus mostly on the history of the Barbary Pirates, and we'll take a look at how this ultimately impacted a new United States. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Glenn Beck had a program on Fox News, and he claimed that the Marine Corps was established by Thomas Jefferson to deal with the Islamic pirates harassing merchantmen in the Mediterranean. This statement turned into a meme and has been shared countless times on social media pages. I just want to begin this episode by saying that his claim isn't valid. If you've been following the podcast, you know the history. The Marine Corps was initially established in 1775 to fight the British. They were disbanded and brought back in 1798, but it wasn't to fight the Barbary pirates. It was to help fight the French during the Quasi-War. Thomas Jefferson wasn't even president at the time. It was John Adams. The Corsairs were indeed harassing merchantmen, and Thomas Jefferson did see this as a problem. In fact, he spoke about this during his presidential campaign, and he promised to stop it. But the Marine Corps wasn't the solution to the problem. The United States usually just paid the ransom to the Barbary pirates. And the reason for this war wasn't because they were Muslim. It was because they were capturing merchant vessels and keeping Americans prisoner. The accuracy of this statement is a really big deal for me. Marines have proven their value throughout history, and there isn't a shortage of heroic tales and fantastic events. Pushing a myth so easily debunked can have an impact on the integrity of Marine Corps history. Our success doesn't need exaggerations. It's proven in the blood, sweat, and tears of the Marines who came before us. There's a few more myths about the Marine Corps we'll get into in future episodes. But for now, 
To understand the origins of North African piracy, we need to go back to the beginning. Pirates in that area have been around for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before the United States existed, and hundreds of years before Europeans even knew about America. The term Barbary went back to the Greeks and was a name used for barbarians. It was originally used to describe all people not of Greek origin, but slowly turned into a phrase to describe the nomads of North Africa. As time progressed, tribes joined together and eventually turned into four separate states. Morocco, Algiers, now Algeria, Tunis, modern-day Tunisia, and Tripoli, what is now Libya. Turkey commanded these four territories, and together they formed part of the Ottoman Empire. During the 7th century, Islamic Arabs invaded North Africa three times. Islam was a new religion, and Muslims were starting to make their mark by conquering land throughout northern Africa. By the year 711, they reached Spain. In just 70 years, this new religion conquered land from the Nile to the Atlantic Ocean. No one was successful in doing this in the past, and this territory eventually became known as the Barbary States. However, the relationship between the Barbary States and the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire started to weaken throughout time. The main cause of this had more to do with their ability to communicate long distances than anything else. Communication was primitive at the time, and the Sultan found it difficult to enforce certain laws and policies. The lack of communication caused citizens in North Africa to start selecting political candidates who lived in the area. The lack of oversight for these candidates sometimes resulted in an unstable regime. Sometimes the leaders would be peaceful, and sometimes they weren't. Often the rulers earned their power through force. Assassinations and coups weren't uncommon. This violence had an impact on the loyalty to the Ottoman Empire. Regional leaders would push the boundaries of acceptable behavior to the point right before beheading was justified. But the punishment from the Sultan was the least of their worries. Barbary state rulers were far more likely to be taken out by one of their military leaders or family members before the Sultan. Barbary states were isolated by rough terrain. The primary way in and out of the area was through the sea. Any invaders trying to conquer the Barbary states on land will have to trek through the harsh Sahara Desert. Leading an army through a hot desert with little water and navigating through mountainous terrains was a challenge for any army. It was difficult for the residents as well. Resources were scarce, and this caused a lot of theft and violence just to survive the unforgiving climate. This violence eventually started to spread, and the Barbary pirates were born. Many Europeans and Americans would travel through the Mediterranean for trade. They were wealthy targets, and an attractive prize for the corsairs. Pirates would seize vessels and sell goods, use captured prisoners for forced labor, sell them for ransom, and extort countries for money. Pirates focused on merchant vessels that lacked sufficient protection and raided defenseless coastal towns in Greece, Italy, and Spain. Some pirate captains even made their way as far north as Denmark. In 1199, Catholicism started to spread, and Catholic priests moved into the Barbary states to spread religion. 
They started the Order of the Holy Trinity and Redemption of Captives. North African leaders allowed Catholic representatives to move into their territory, but it wasn't out of the goodness of their heart or a belief in their religion. The Trinitarian Order brought missions and hospitals with them, and the Barbary state saw this as a great opportunity to exploit Christianity for food, medicine, and as another mechanism to generate ransom money. This relationship would go on for hundreds of years. In 1492, Catholics would attack Granada, Spain, which housed a large Muslim population. The Catholics won and forced thousands of Muslims to leave the country and settle in North Africa. The displacement of thousands resulted in outrage. They wanted revenge for being kicked out of their homes, and many of them turned to piracy, which exponentially increased the size of the Corsairs. As the Ottoman Empire headed into the 16th century, two brothers started a campaign. They were known as the Barbarossa brothers, a nickname given to them because of their red beards. This partnership changed the game for the Barbary pirates. No longer were pirates searching for personal profit. The Barbarossa brothers established political authority, and pirates operated more as privateers and were authorized by their government to seize merchant vessels. The 16th century was the beginning of how many picture pirates today. They were bold, adventurous, and had a very powerful fleet. In the early 1500s, pirates seized two treasure galleys owned by Pope Julius II, captured Spanish settlements, and removed leaders from power. The Barbary pirates grew larger than they have been before, and the size caused Europeans to worry. Spain, Portugal, Sicily, France, and Britain all tried to stop the Barbary pirates. They sent multiple fleets, and sometimes armies. Occasionally, they succeeded in dethroning the current leader, but their plan seemed to be short-sighted. They would conquer the territory and then just leave, thinking things would work out for themselves. Before they knew it, a new leader would emerge and pirates would be reborn. Spain, Portugal, and Britain all owned property in northern Africa. Portugal conquered Tangier and ruled the city for a couple of hundred years but due to the constant attacks and the resources needed to sustain the country, they eventually gave it to Great Britain. Britain had the same problem, and they only held the country for about 20 years. The king decided to abandon the city, which resulted in the Moors taking it back, or the Moops if you're a Seinfeld fan. But despite the piracy and constant headaches from the Corsairs, they were more of an annoyance than a threat. No country wanted to spend their money or use their resources to launch a large-scale expedition. It was much easier and cheaper just to pay the ransom and call it a day. You can argue that this was a gutless way to handle the problem, and you wouldn't be wrong, but this tactic had other benefits as well. Pragmatically, this was the best solution for larger countries. Paying a ransom was certainly cheaper and it also had the added benefit of shifting the attention to any merchants who were unable or unwilling to pay. This tactic minimized competition and allowed larger countries to thrive. The 1650s to the 1730s are considered the golden age of piracy. Blackbeard, Captain Kidd, Calico Jack, chances are if you know the name of a famous pirate, 
he or she was from this time. And I'm not saying she for the sake of being politically correct. There were notorious female pirates during this time. If you don't mind a thick Italian accent, check out the Pirate Queen episode on the History of Fire podcast. It's an amazing episode about a Chinese woman who was a prostitute in the floating brothels near Canton and became the leader of the biggest pirate confederacy in modern history. In April 1682, Britain established a relatively good relationship with the Barbary pirates. They negotiated a treaty with Algiers and were able to visit any port in the state safely. They could freely travel throughout their waters and were guaranteed not to be taken as slaves. The Corsairs honored this treaty, but it wasn't due to their high morals. Britain had the strongest navy at the time, and the Corsairs simply wouldn't be able to defend against retaliation from Great Britain. During the same year, France was able to inflict a damaging blow to the Corsairs. They conducted multiple operations and minimized the pirate fleet to only 25% of their previous strength. But despite their size, they were still impacting trade. Europeans conducted another expedition against Algiers in 1775 and again in 1784. Both expeditions ended the same and they failed to eradicate the problem. But by this time, there was a new country in the picture. The young United States just won their independence. Before the American Revolution, the British fleet protected the colonies against the pirates. Now that America was an independent state, that protection was no longer available. America had a considerable merchant fleet. However, they didn't possess a navy. Just two years after the United States won its independence, Congress decided to sell the naval vessels used in the war to minimize cost and help pay down the war debt. Marines were disbanded and the army was reduced to a small force with the main mission of defending the new country against Native American raids. Congress was hesitant to maintain a military and believed that keeping a force after the American Revolution wasn't needed and a waste of money. Some even thought keeping a military during a time of peace can threaten the country's liberty. This threat sounds counterintuitive today, but this was a time before the United States Constitution was signed, and a strong central authority did not exist to keep the military in check. The Articles of Confederation existed, but they had very little power, and many states didn't support it. As an attempt to deal with piracy, Congress sent the three commissioners in Paris, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, to negotiate commercial treaties with the four states. America already had an existing relationship with Morocco. The country recognized the United States in 1778, before we received independence. However, the three commissioners did not reach an agreement, and the Moroccan government interpreted America's disinterest in their terms as an insult. On October 11th, they retaliated by seizing the Betsy, a merchant ship sailing to Tenerife, off the coast of Morocco. The purpose of this attack was to collect a ransom and establish a commercial treaty in their terms. Some Americans called for Congress to attack rather than face the humiliation of paying the ransom. But Congress decided to pay, and on March 11, 1785, split $80,000 between the four Barbary states.
Now, I said this for the American Revolution, the quasi-war, and I'll probably say it for every other war we discuss, but we have the luxury of hindsight. Looking back, paying pirates a ransom of $80,000 probably wasn't the best move. This initial payment opened up the floodgates and caused the Barbary states to extort America on a large scale. But paying a ransom wasn't unusual for the time and Moroccan authorities wanted a treaty, which usually was in the form of an annual payment. The Moroccan authorities signed a treaty on June 23, 1786. They agreed to stop seizing American ships, and the United States wouldn't have to pay tribute to the government for trade in the area. Both countries would barter on equal terms. But this treaty did not extend to the other three Barbary states, nor were they interested in a treaty. Algiers was much more powerful than Morocco, and they weren't interested in negotiating. At the time, they held 21 Americans as prisoners and used them as slaves. The punishment for slaves in the Barbary states was really harsh. There are reports of castration, impaling, and sometimes they threw offenders off the city walls and onto a series of hooks. Algiers expected a substantial amount for their freedom. The American prisoners made written pleas to Congress, but the United States was still new, and they didn't have a central government capable of dealing with international issues. Algiers wanted $1 million for the prisoners. In March 1786, an American commissioner, John Lamb, traveled to Algiers to negotiate. He was able to lower the ransom amount from $1 million to $60,000. In addition to paying the ransom, Lamb demanded a treaty as well. Algiers would decline the treaty, but was still open to the $60,000 payment. Without agreeing to a treaty, Lamb decided not to pay. To him, it was pointless. Without a treaty, America didn't have a guarantee that the same scenario would happen again. So he left Algiers without the prisoners. They would serve as slaves for seven years until February 1792, where the United States agreed to pay $100,000 for peace, $13,500 per year for tribute, and another $27,000 for ransom. Unfortunately, this treaty did nothing. America couldn't defend itself against the Barbary pirates, and Algerans knew this. The following year, Algiers captured 11 American vessels and 104 men in the process. To add insult to injury, Algiers raised the price of peace to $2 million. The United States negotiated this amount, and they agreed to the amount of $600,000. Making another payment after the Corsairs blatantly disregarded the original peace treaty was a complete embarrassment for the United States. As the years progressed, the cost of peace would continue to rise. Algiers called for gifts, ransom payments, and tributes. According to the United States Treasury, the U.S. paid a million dollars to this treaty alone. At the time, this was 16% of the national revenue and the country's highest expense. Congress authorized a permanent naval force on March 20, 1794, and approved the budget for the construction of six frigates. The Navy Act of 1794 had a clause that would stop the construction of these ships if the two countries found peace. 
Paying such a large amount of money was very hard for the United States. So payments sometimes took the form of military supplies. In September 1796, the United States gave a 36-gun frigate to Algiers. America gave Algiers ships, weapons, and ammunition. Not only were we paying large amounts of money to the Barbary pirates, but we were arming them as well. Tunis and Tripoli were aware of the treaties between Algiers and Morocco and the huge amounts of money the United States was paying to the two countries. They wanted a peace too and threatened war if they did not receive similar payments. The same dance would play out. America would refuse, pirates would capture ships, and the United States would end up paying anyways. As time progressed, the threats and embarrassments to the United States continued to grow. In September 1800, William Bainbridge, captain of the George Washington and former Barbary prisoner himself, arrived in Algiers with gifts. He brought gunpowder, coffee, and sugar. Bainbridge's voyage would be historic in more ways than one. This was the first time any American warship passed through the Straits of Gibraltar. Usually, merchant vessels carried the tribute, but the United States wanted to send a message. No longer was America a country without a navy. She was thriving and was ready to protect the nation if needed. The ride in was eventless. No one harassed the ship, and when she pulled into the harbor, the crew was feeling pretty confident that the ship was making their point. Bainbridge thought that this would be a quick exchange, but he was wrong. As they entered the harbor, Bainbridge was led and anchored the ship under a fortress of over 200 cannons and a fleet of ships. It was common for Barbary rulers to send part of their shipment to Constantinople as tribute. The new ruler of Algiers, Boba Mustafa, ordered Bainbridge to deliver the supplies to the Sultan in Constantinople. Bainbridge was taken back by this command. This hadn't been done before and Mustafa didn't have authority over Bainbridge. The American captain replied that this isn't possible because he doesn't have orders directing him to complete that mission. He pointed out the treaty between the two nations, and it specifically said that military ships will not perform duties for the Algerian Regency. Bainbridge had a point, but Mustafa didn't care. He told Bainbridge that he must carry out the mission or his crew would be taken prisoner the ship seized, and Algiers would declare war on the United States. In Bainbridge's mind, he had very little option. If they tried to escape, they would be destroyed by the nearby fleet and fortress. He couldn't send a message back to the United States. It would take months to receive a reply. Bainbridge agreed to make this delivery, and this was the start of the humiliation he and the United States would face. After agreeing to this mission, Bainbridge found out that he would also carry an additional 200 passengers, half of which were slaves. The George Washington was used as a slave ship by the pirates, which is extremely insulting to the man the ship is named after. In his will, George Washington denounced slavery, and he was hoping many slave owners would follow his lead. With a maximum capacity of 220, the ship was already well beyond full. To make matters worse, the George Washington would also carry four horses, 25 cattle, 150 sheep, 
four lions, four tigers, four antelopes, and twelve parrots. The biggest insult came next. Mustafa ordered Bainbridge to lower the American colors and raise the Algerian flag. That was painful for me when I first read it, and it still is now. Bainbridge obeyed, and seven guns were fired saluting the flag. The crew didn't take this well, and there was an entry in the ship's log that read, Some tears fell at this instance of national humility. As they sailed out of view, Bainbridge would raise the American colors again, but needless to say, the crew was devastated. Aldrin's on the ship didn't care too much about the flag, but somehow they still had power and they ordered Bainbridge to change their course to adapt to their prayer schedule. So for the rest of the 23-day journey, the ship had to point to the east towards Mecca five times a day. There was even one Aldrin with a compass making sure they were pointed in the right direction. The crew reached Constantinople and Bainbridge delivered the cargo. They left shortly after and headed back to America. Bainbridge commented, I hope I shall never again be sent to Algiers with tribute unless I am authorized to deliver it from the mouth of our cannon. When the ship returned home, the public was furious. People hated Bainbridge and they thought his behavior was unforgivable and accused the United States of, quote, staring evil in the face and blinking first, unquote. Bainbridge reported these events to the Secretary of the Navy. In his letter, he wrote, Sir, I cannot help observing that the event of this day makes me ponder on the words independent United States. And he wasn't wrong. How can the United States claim to be an independent nation when they were taking orders from pirates? Maybe not to the extent of Bainbridge, but the United States was taking orders from pirates for years. Consul General to Tunis, William Eaton, expressed his disgust in the situation with the Secretary of State, and he was ashamed that the first United States ship of war which ever entered the Mediterranean was forced into the service of a pirate. The Barbary pirate situation was a big topic during the presidential election campaign between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Jefferson criticized the administration, stating that even though we have a growing navy, Nothing had been done to stop the Corsairs. Jefferson promised to end this embarrassment if he should be elected. This promise couldn't have come at a better time, and in July, Tripoli captured another ship and issued another ultimatum to the United States. They wanted more money and threatened war if America did not pay. On February 26, 1801, America refused to make the payment, and Tripoli kept their promise. They declared war on the United States a few weeks before Thomas Jefferson took office. But unlike many politicians today, Jefferson kept his word. He wrote to the Secretary of State, James Madison, saying, I am an enemy to all these tributes and humiliations. I know that nothing will stop the eternal increase from these pirates but the presence of an armed force. The quasi-war was over, and the United States now had a small fleet and a president dedicated to stopping the Barbary pirates. America also had her marines, and they are about to travel to the shores of Tripoli. Thanks for listening. 
Next week, we'll follow the Marines to the shores of Tripoli and discuss how the United States plans to succeed where major European empires have failed for hundreds of years. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.